Welcome to Inflection Point Podcast, where we cultivate change from the inside out as we ponder the Cairo question. Will Cairo have to protest in his lifetime for the birthright to freely and peacefully exist in the skin in which he was born? We stand on the belief that dismantling racism goes beyond laws and legislation or politics and economics. Here, anti-racism activation is presented as an inside job where personal transformation and accountability impact social change. So take a seat at the anti-racism activation table with inflection point podcast well hello and welcome to yet another episode of inflection point podcast i'm anita russell and i thank you for joining us and we have a really uh, amazing uh, thought-provoking uh, conversation in store for you today um on this show if you've been watching us for a while you know that we challenge our audience to listen actively and intentionally for the purpose of learning and understanding so having said that now we'll have a quick hello from mavis and gail hi i'm mavis bauman welcome hi i'm gail hunter and welcome excellent excellent so let's just jump right into um our conversation Ironically, we're talking about conversation today. <laughs> so the theme actually is engaging in authentic conversation about race and racism requires listening, not rebuttal. And so we're going to start off by just looking at the, the word conversation, right? And talking about the art of conversation, because I think we can all agree that conversation is not about argument it's not about debates it's not about rebuttals it's not about any of those types of things so i'm going to read a little bit from an article uh from the conversation <laughs> this website called the conversation and it's an article by uh, a gentleman by the name of john armstrong and in the article it says conversation is civilized speech it is more purposeful than chatter, more humane than gossip, more intimate than debate. But at the same time, it is an elusive ideal. And so it goes on to say when we're engaged in conversations or just verbal exchanges, if you will, we often can flip from one topic to another while the conversation uh, sort of implies that something more substantial needs to be happening so just the word conversation indicates that it's not just this flipping kind of thing where we're one second we're talking about the weather and the next second we're talking about flowers in the garden or what's on tv or some conversations a little bit uh deeper than that and so the article goes on to say a conversation is the encounter of two polished minds so just think about that expression two polished minds that are tactful enough to listen, confident enough to express their true beliefs, subtle enough to search out the reasons behind the thoughts. So if you've been following us for a while, you know that um, our four tenets are courage, conversation, relationship, and accountability. And those first two, courage and conversation, actually go hand in hand. Because when you're talking about something like racism, it takes a lot 
depending on where you're coming from, what sort of geographical location you're coming from, what is your cultural experiences and things like that, it can be very, very difficult to have conversations about race. And so that's why in putting this program together, I centered on courage as being that first step. But it's not just courage to step into a conversation about a topic that makes you feel uncomfortable. It's about you stepping into a conversation where part of the point of that conversation is that you are examining yourself, right? So we talk a lot about critical self-reflection and that is gaining a really intimate understanding of the thoughts, the words and beliefs that lurk within your own mind, within your own heart, your own spirit. And then also beginning to understand why do I have these beliefs? Why do I think in this certain uh, way? Or even how did I even come to the place of thinking and believing these and um, these types of ideas? And so, again, if you've been following us for a while, you've heard Gail and Mavis's story, right? And uh, the reason I'm pointing them out is because these, this is an example of two white women coming from completely different places in terms of their upbringing, one being very heavily involved in um, protesting and activism at a relatively young age, that would be uh, uh, Gail, and then Mavis kind of grew up in a different type of environment, more of an all-white environment in Nebraska. But yet here we are as three grown women and being able to engage in these conversations, even though our backgrounds are very different, even though coming into these conversations, our thoughts may have been very different. But I would say that the difference um, between us, the three of us, and people who are just can't have these conversations because it always ends up being, oh, well, what about this? Or, oh, what about that? Or, you know, black people are this and black people are that or whatever, without the conversation really being about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the beauty that the three of us, this triad, if you will, brings to the table is that we are very, both, all three of us, comfortable with having those conversations about what lurks within the inside of us and then examining what is showing up in our words, our actions, and our behaviors. But the key is that we have conversations about that. And I don't mean conversations just on this show. I mean conversations outside of this show because we all have, the three of us connected represents a genuine friendship, genuine allyship, genuine respect for one another as human beings. And part of that is the fact that we understand the art of conversation, right? And so um, I I'm just going to pick out a couple of other pieces in the article that jumped out at me. A classical, classical conception of conversation takes convergence as its final even though distant goals. So just think about that. The three of us come from completely different places. I was raised on activism for the most part, right? 
And Gail, describing some of her experiences, came into activism because of some things that she experienced and witnessed in her teenage years. And then Mavis came into all of this much later in her life, right? But the point is, we all converged. Mm -hmm. We are like a meeting of the minds, if you will. And we all converged. And the goal for us is doing this show, talking about racial literacy, talking about historical literacy, understanding those differences that lie within us, because the argument doesn't isn't based on like, oh, everybody's just the same. Yeah, we are the same in the sense that we're all human beings and all of that. But we're all very different. But there's nothing wrong with us all being very different. And we can all be very different and still have convergent conversations. Because you find that place of mutual agreement oftentimes once you begin to pull back some of those layers within yourself. So it's not about me pulling back Gail's layers or Mavis's layers. It's about us individually understanding who we are and how did we arrive in the place where we are right now as members of a racialized society. That is the beauty of what we have in this experience here. So um, I still there's still like another five minutes or so. Gail, Mavis, did you want to uh, comment on this segment before we move on? Well, I think the biggest thing that I, I thoroughly enjoy and respect from all of us is our genuineness and our honesty, right? We just kind of show up and we're just being who we are. And mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's no judgment. There's no, I mean, it's just this ability to be able to risk that vulnerability and, and share who we are and see the other, you know, I think that's so crucial and that's what's missing. Yeah. We have to let our own ego states get out of the way, right? We have to go. So it's a very insecure state of being. And the goal is to let go of them, but we have to have a healthy one first. We have to kind of know who we are and, and just feel grounded in that and feel comfortable with that. And I think we do, even though we come from very different backgrounds, as you said, Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to add too that I, you framed it up so beautifully. It kind of got me. (laughs) I mean, it really is uh, an accomplishment Mm -hmm. to uh, get several people to converge like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if we haven't disagreed, mostly me. (laughs) I've disagreed because I had no frame of reference to understand some things. But, you know, both Anita and Gail have consistently, lovingly said, here's, here's how this works. And they've, they've worked with me. And, and I've shared with them, you know, my, my experience, which was very white and very naive, too. Because being in the middle of the country at that time was very different than it is now. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see the warning there. It's that willingness to risk that vulnerability. I mean, you can't have intimacy at any level without risking vulnerability and without honesty mm-hmm. and truth, right? And respect. They all have to be together. And I think we bring that together. That is existing within each of us. And we come to the table with all of it. Good yeah. point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to... Um, read this uh, other quote. So again, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that a lot of the work that I do as a um, 
as a transformation, personal transformation expert, the anti-racism activation work and all of that stuff that I do to a great extent is based on uh, Harvard, the Harvard uh, University uh, professor, Robert Livingston. Like I quote him all the time. He's like my hero. <laughs> all of this. Um, and so he this is something that he said. And this is a, a person who has had um, a, a, a career as a sociologist and doing all kinds of research. And, you know, how do people talk to one another? How do they not talk to one another? And all that sort of thing. And so I actually rely on his work a lot um, in the work that I do because it centers me and it, it it centers me, but it also validates my own thoughts. And when I get this idea, sometimes I'll look and say, oh, I wonder what uh, uh, Dr. Livingston <laughs> says about this. And so it just he's just become like a really good um, resource for me. So this is what he says. Very early on in my career, I thought you could change people's minds, if not hearts, by just providing them with accurate information. With greater wisdom that I have garnered over the 20 years I've been doing this work, I have found that social, listen to this, how important this is, that social relationships provide a portal for facts to be received and digested by people. Just let that sink in, the, the visual imagery uh, of that. And without that, people often build walls to insulate what they currently believe to be true. And I think relationships provide an opening within that wall to maybe a different perspective to enter. Isn't that exactly what we're doing here? Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what we are doing here with the and and again, courage, conversation, mm -hmm. relationship, and accountability. For right. me, the four of those things go together. Mm -hmm. And when I was putting all of this, the, the concept of inflection point together, um, those were the four things that I, I came up with. And then I stumbled upon Dr. Livingston's book. And that's what I mean when I say his work validates the work that I do. And yes. so that was very gratifying for me to know that I was um, on the right track. Okay. So this is the last thing that I'm going to say. And then I'm going to uh, pass the baton over to Gail. This is, uh, wait, where am I? Okay. So this is why true conversation is not quite like a debate. In a debate, one feels that the argument has priority. But that's not the priority in conversation. In mm. conversation, it is the person that comes first. So when you think about all of those times when I've talked about, you know, harmonizing historical truths with lived experiences, when you're engaging in these types of conversations, the validity of that person's lived experience plays a very big role in that conversation. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So, and, um, and the relationship element too. Yeah. 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 I yeah. was thinking about if we were giving each other things to read, you know, like the, the you know white people tend to want to do read a book and then they know all about racism. If we were just doing that, it would not have the same energy and, and level of connection. So yeah. the relationships are key. Really key. Right. Absolutely. So at this point, I'm going to pass the baton over to Gail. 
All right. Thank you, Anita. Yeah, we all are wired for connection. I think that's the basis of why that can happen. We can be more open to um, something different or a new perspective when there is a connection, right? When we can feel that base of that connection, as, as you know, you were saying, you know, um, one of the most uh, precious aspects of conversation is that it does, doesn't presuppose agreement, right? Mm-hmm. It presupposes civility and sincerity. And I love that quote. Mm. If you think about that, it really is. That's really what we all are needing in our conversations is to come from that place, um, come from more the place of the heart and courage. Courage comes from the Latin word core, which means heart, Mm. right? And so what's missing in so much of these conversations that turn into fights or arguments or whatever is the heart's missing, you know, that we've forgotten and lost that perspective of what are we doing here? Why are we trying to have this conversation? Right. And so we have to kind of begin to look at what are the fears that are getting in the way. And the fears can always get fears, always there, fears opposite, polar opposite to love. And so it's going to tell us distortions and lies and whatever else that goes along with that. Um, it's going to um, identify the excuses that we make that um, in a negative or positive or good or bad. Um, it's going to tell us all kinds of different things that are going to limit our beliefs. And when mm-hmm. we limit our beliefs, we feel fear, right? And, and whatever fear, rejection, or whatever insecurity is there, it's going to become more intense and increase, right? So we have to get rid of that fear. We have to be really honest with ourselves and say, what scares me about having a conversation about this topic or with this person? And just really look within yourself and say, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that I'm going to be right or wrong? Am I afraid that I'm going to feel like I don't know anything? Am I afraid of, of whatever the insecurity might be coming up with? And so it's really important to deal with that, those ego states, right, that are always based in some form of insecurity. Because you can't really truly authentically express yourself and your feelings when you're attaching to any level of fear. Um, so mm-hmm. you have to get clear within yourself first, I think. And that's work in it, all of its own. I've been doing that work forever. Um, so once you kind of get those ego states a little bit calmed and a little bit more in perspective, um, you want to think about um, Douglas Stone stated a quote that uh, I'll say his quote that the single most important thing you can do is to shift your internal stance from I understand to help me understand mm. and everything else follows from that. Mm. And that's such a huge, it's a little shift, but it's a huge shift, right? Because if I go into a conversation, I already believe I understand, I'm not going to listen to anything the other person is saying. I'm going to be listening to that dialogue that's going off in my own head. And that's, I'm creating the rebuttal. I'm creating the reaction to it. But I'm not really taking the time to just listen and really hear what the other person is feeling, what they're saying, what their belief system is. Right. And so it's it's crucial to be able to do that, to really get into that that headspace. Um, And you have to also be open to experiencing some discomfort. You know, when, I talked about risk and vulnerability to create any level of intimacy. There's going to be discomfort sometimes. That's almost inevitable, but that's okay. If we can trust and ground ourselves in what we know to be true within ourselves, we can step into that discomfort. And in time, that discomfort will become more familiar and a little bit more comfortable. The more that we are willing to step into that place, that releases all that fear. Right? Um, you also have to be very realistic about your expectations. Um, don't 
expect that the other person is going to be automatically on your side, quote, and right, and and agree with you because that may not happen. Maybe some things may shift, or maybe it's going to be you that's going to shift. Um, so you want to be open to what the possibilities can be without judging and without expecting them to be a certain way. Uh, you have to set the emotional tone for the conversation. Um, you have to stay, make you allow yourself to be in a calm state. And one of the things I recommend is doing that breathing, that four, seven, eight breathing, where you inhale slowly to a count of four. You hold the inhale to a count of seven. Then you exhale slowly to a count of eight. When you exhale at a longer rate than what you do inhaling, you activate that vagus nerve. And that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which then gets us all calmed down. And we stay connected to our prefrontal cortex, where all that executive functioning is. You can't have a discussion with somebody if you're disconnected from up here. If you activate another part of your brain, that limbic system and the amygdala that goes into that fight, flight, or freeze, the conversation's over, right? Because your whole nervous system cannot tolerate that. Right, so because you're going into activation, or you're going into shutdown, or what something, but you're not staying present. And the goal is to make sure you're calm in order to be able to be present in that those conversations. Um, some of the different things they uh, are listed seven different key mistakes that we can make in order to uh, to sort a possible courageous conversation that we talk too much, um, or we are not clear about our own message. We're not really thinking, as I said before, about the other person's feelings. We're thinking more about our own thoughts and feelings. Um, you want to, you don't want to try to oversimplify something um, just because it makes it easier to deal with. You want to be willing to step into that hard place that is uncomfortable. You don't want to rehearse or memorize what you're going to say because then that's, that takes away from any authenticity. Um, and so it's really important to be able be able to be grounded and really approach a conversation from that place. I wanted to um, I want to talk about what some of the skills are because there it's not that difficult. The difficult is everything we've been talking about up until that point of getting ready to be able to have that conversation of being really able to tap into your own own um, truth within yourself here and becoming be willing to come to that conversation from a place of genuine. Um, genuineness and authenticity and just honesty um, and most of all a willingness to hear and to listen right um, so what this kind of conversation emphasizes is compassion and instead of using any fear guilt shame blame coercion or threat or justification for any kind of punishment that might come from it it's really about creating a quality of connection um, that we all need, and we all need to meet it with compassion and respectful listening and the ability to express our thoughts and feelings and beliefs in a safe place. Because we're wired to want to, and we desire to be safe. And so you want to have this conversation be created from a place that is safe within each, of, each person, and that creates that energy between the two. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so this allows the openness of the heart for empathy, and honesty is like the road that we can travel on then um, when we can open our heart um, and able to connect from that place within us. And it doesn't mean that um, I know exactly what you've experienced. I don't know. But it's being willing to say, I don't know what you've experienced, but I want to understand from your perspective what your experience was really like and then be willing to listen and hear that. That's crucial in being able to have these conversations, right? Um, so there are two roles. I have, I've been teaching this communication model for 
probably four or five decades. I mean, literally since I started in, um, in my own practice. And there's a speaker role and there is a listener role. And that's very important to simplify that because you can't have a dialogue with both people being the speaker or both people just listening, right? One has to be in one role and one has to be in another role. And if they start to enmesh too much, then there's no dialogue. It becomes a confused monologue from both people, right? Um, so, the, but the rules for being the speaker um, are really important. They, um, they, they must pause every so often in order to give the listener time to reflect on what they are hearing. Because if you don't, you're going to overload the listener. And it's too much information. Two or three sentences is, is a lot. And it doesn't sound like a lot. But when you're really listening and you really want to tell the, other, the speaker back what you hear, you want to make sure that there's enough time for those pauses in there. And so the speaker has to be kind of mindful of that and allow that the listener to be able to take a few moments to say, this is what I hear you're saying. The speaker also has to include um, in a topic how it affects and causes that speaker to feel. But they must use I statements so that I feel blank when I experience whatever. Um, I feel um, this is what I hear when I experience that. This is what I believe when I experience that. So the I statements of, well, people this or you that, or you want to eliminate all those other pronouns and really just say I. The speaker is also not allowed to use any kind of judgment or blame or criticism. So think about when you're having conversations with a partner, a spouse, or somebody close to you, right? Um, and you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to use any judgment, any blame, or any criticism, right? That's not easy to do. What that does is it really force, forces the speaker to own what is really there to own for themselves. Right. And so that allows them then to go on and to continue on just owning it without interrupting that that flow of conversation. Um, you, the speaker is allowed to say, I would appreciate it if um, towards the end, if there's something that is needed from the listener, they are allowed to say that. Um, and then when the, finish, the speaker's finished and you're done saying something, you have to make one last statement and let the listener make one last response. And then you switch roles. Then the listener the listener's role, you have to be present. You have to really be relaxed and you have to be open to your own compassion and empathic heart uh, to be able to actually show empathy to the speaker. There are three listening modes, just three. You maybe find some other ones, but there are three big ones. Um, one um, of the listening skills is uh, mirroring. It's just really saying back what you hear the person saying. What I hear you saying is blank. And I understand from your perspective you feel or believe blank. And that's key because I understand from your perspective, I'm not putting me in this. I'm really trying to stay focused on really hearing what you are saying to me. The other is called reflective listening. Um, it's when you say, I hear you're feeling blank about something. But it's really the, it's an attempting to clarify an emotion for the, list, for the, um, for the speaker and trying to maybe even deepen that a little bit. So if somebody says, I feel sad, I could come back and say, well, it sounds like you feel really disappointed or disillusioned. It's a little fine tuning. And that person, the speaker may say, no, nah, I don't feel that at all. I really feel this. It also, and it's okay to be wrong in what you're saying, because then that gives the speaker a chance to then clarify a little bit more and go a little bit deeper. And the other skill of listening is called validation. And validation is not when you um, even agree with or you believe or feel the same way. 
It's when I can understand how you would feel hurt when. It's the ability to understand from the other person's perspective or experience how they might feel and be willing then to offer that compassion um, as the listener. And then again, when the speaker's finished, then the speaker makes one last statement and the listener makes one last response. Now, those rules are very similar for both roles, but I want you to think about how often do we use those rules, right? In every conversation that we have. Mm. So, Gail, we have like one more minute left in, yeah, in done, yeah. this particular segment. And I want you to say something about this quote. It's uh, it's uh, from Julia Korn. I believe it was in Positive Psychology. Uh-huh. She's really talking about this idea of empathy. So if in like 20 mm-hmm. seconds, you could tell me your uh, response. Quote, For white people in America, it is up to us to listen first. Then we must seek greater knowledge about our country's deeply rooted racism. It is an undue burden on our colleagues and friends of color to teach us about racism and do the mental work for us. So in 30 seconds, what's your response? So think about it. We, uh, if we, as a white person, if I'm expecting a black person to, to teach me what I need to actually be able to look in that mirror and look within myself and understand, that's like putting more work on top of what has already been put upon, right? Black mm-hmm. people as a culture, as a race. That's not fair. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't appreciate that from somebody. And so empathy is, I have to be able to have empathy for, for the person I'm looking to, to ask, to give that to me. And if they're not willing or able to, that's okay. It doesn't mean I can't find that. Mm-hmm. I can't understand. I can't go deeper within myself because that's really where the work has to be. And do that with empathy even for myself. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to jump to break. And then when we come back, we'll move on to the third segment with uh, Mavis. So we'll be back in like another minute or so. You've been listening, but are you watching? Tune in to your favorite shows on the Transformation Talk Radio Facebook page. We stream live video podcasts every day, and we love to hear from you. Leave comments and questions for the host to address live, on the air, and get to know the faces behind the voices you love. Just go to Facebook and search for Transformation Talk Radio. Yeah, yippee skippy to that, baby. Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia, and I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love, past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. So 
So welcome back. You are listening to Inflection Point Podcast on Transformation Talk Radio. And our topic is engaging in authentic conversation about race and racism requires listening, not rebuttal. So we're going to pass the mic again, and we're going to pass the mic over to Mavis. And she's going to talk about the answer to this question. What do you trust? Statistics, lived experiences, or both? And she's going to talk about it within the context of the myth of Black-on-Black crime. Great, great. Thanks, Anita. I uh, have been, you know, looking at a number of resources on this and thinking about the common phrases that I've heard over my life about crime, about Black people being dangerous, Black-on-Black crime, and so on. And um, I just Googled some, some sentence like that, and lo and behold, this statement came up Blacks uh, on a conversation site, Blacks commit 60% of all violent crime, but only 14%, but they're only 14% of the population. And you look at that and you think, there it is, black and white. Somebody's taking that, believing it, and perhaps posting it on social media. There's no reference as to where those numbers come from. But this guy goes on to say, um, uh, why is this? There's no family structure uh, and a community that condones young girls having babies. Uh, other minorities that come to this country with mount money and without speaking our language still surpass blacks. It's amazing. So, you know, where is he getting all of these things? These are the kinds of uh, points of view, opinions, um, racialized beliefs that get fed. And uh, the more they get repeated, the bigger they grow. So um, just anecdotally, I I remember when I was working in my early 20s, I had a great boss who uh, had a great sense of humor. And I remember him telling me about a book called Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I never did actually read the whole book. It's written by Michael Wheeler, I believe, in the 70s. And he's talking about how statistics are manipulated for polls, political polls mainly. But the same principle uh, plays out in any um, uh, uh, field, any place someone wants to make a point, you can gather the numbers and, and form statistics to make that point. The fact is that's not necessarily a scientific process. Anita, if I use the wrong words in this, in describing this, let me know. I will. But um, the the only way you can really rely on on any statistic that you would see, say in social media, the newspaper, whatever, is you know a, a trusted resource, and to know that those statistics could be um, produced by an objective group doing the same sort of research. In other words, even the questions that come into the research are biased very often. The person doing the research has an expectation of a certain outcome. Those things are very difficult to rinse out of um, a research process. But uh, the idea would be then to uh, have something that uh, like I say, is repeatable and uh, by separate groups. That, those kinds of numbers would, would hold some water. 
But anyway, this this person on this chat uh, page uh, goes on to um, say, <laughs> uh, let's stop making excuses and stop, start acting like mature adults. By the way, using some big words doesn't do anything either. We need to take personal responsibility. Let's stop blaming white people, especially since they invented almost everything that makes our lives better. How about that? <laughs> they know this guy doesn't know about the ice cream scoop, does he? <laughs> or the ironing board or the traffic light. Right. Oh, yeah, all right. All of those things. Right. But you know, he 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 see it seems like he's preventing facts, but he is not preventing facts, presenting facts. He has gathered these things up from his own uh uh conversations, probably with other people, and is putting them out there as facts. So um uh, I, you know, I think every one of us can relate to the polls for the, you know, the um, 2016 election, how uh, the polls said one thing was going to happen and that so didn't happen. <laughs> and it surprised all of us. It's the way those polls were constructed, the bias uh, with the polling organizations, and even the people who answer the questions. Um, they may feel like uh, they're not safe in answering the questions and not answer them truthfully. So where we get our statistics is uh, very, very important. I did find another piece um, by uh, a conservative organization, the Heritage Foundation, uh, entitled Who Suffers the Most from Crime Wave? And um, uh, this this speaks to somewhat the black on black, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric. But um, the idea is that crime is definitely increasing. But um, I'll, I'll give you the takeaway so I make sure I stay clear on this. The first takeaway is African-Americans bear an increasingly large share of the harm from crime. The second one is the relative share of offenders by racial groups followed a similar trend to the share of victims. So it's not like one group, blacks, are committing all the crimes on another group, whites. There is a, a consistent a relationship there. The third one is the spike in crime is hurting a lot of people and black communities bear the heaviest burden. Um, so uh, this is all about FBI crime data. And um, even the Heritage Foundation says, you know, even the FBI's crime data is suspect. Um, there's a piece in here. Hang on. OK. In 2020, nearly 3,000 3, law enforcement agencies around the country opted not to send the FBI their crime data. Mm -hmm. leaving 14.8% of law enforcement agencies and the crimes committed in their respective jurisdictions unaccounted for in the national incident-based reporting system. Mm -hmm. So we, we see now that statistics cannot be relied on, certainly in how we treat each other on an individual level. So this, you know, this brings us back to the whole idea of lived experiences and and listening to people, black people and their lived experiences. Um, you know, when I thought a little bit about that at first, I'm thinking, well, 
a lived experience is kind of individual and doesn't necessarily uh, um, spread out to the whole of the group. But the preponderance of those uh, conversations, those stories will tell you what's happening. Um, they use an example in this article that if um, uh, oh, there was a woman who was in a car accident, she was thrown from her car and she survived. The car was totally destroyed because she was thrown from her car and wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So she took from that seatbelts are dangerous. So we need to be very careful about taking anecdotal information from anybody and extrapolating them to the whole. But when we listen in conversations like Gail and Anita described uh, to the, the personal experiences of Black people, their histories within the country, um, since you know they were brought to our shores, um, what they're experiencing now, how those experiences relate to the history of slavery, then a truer picture starts to emerge. So um, uh, I do want to read something that uh, uh, Ibram X. Kendi says, and I think this is really enlightening. <laughs> he says, Americans have long been trained to see the deficiencies of people rather than policy. It's a pretty easy mistake to make. People are in our faces. Policies are distant. We are particularly poor at seeing the policies lurking behind the struggles of people. So just to kind of bring that home, uh, the um, common rhetoric might be, why don't Black people pull themselves up by their bootstraps? They were allowed to have bootstraps. That's you were not allowed to have any bootstraps. It was against the law for us to have bootstraps. <laughs> yeah, it was against the law. Why aren't, uh, you, you know, the whole thing about education, yeah. Black people were blocked from education for the first however many years, uh, even after slavery. And then certainly, you know, er education was segregated, um, lower quality, and so on. And those all came into being by policies that were voted on by probably white men at that time. And so those policies keep rippling out even today. And I think that, you know, it's really important to, for us to think about instead of looking at any group of people and making assumptions from what you see right in front of them, ask yourself, what would be that person's story? What is their story? How are they here? What hurdles were they not able to jump? Um, uh, get to know some people in those situations. You know, we tend to cluster with, with like people, um, people who have similar experiences, live in our neighborhoods, um, and so on. But get to know somebody way outside of your neighborhood, your educational background, your job, and see what you learn. I mean, like Anita was talking about the three of us coming from such different backgrounds. Oh, my goodness, what I have learned from them. And, you know, I've learned so much about how much I had no exposure to any of this growing up. And I just was uh, the, the, you know, subjected to policies that I 
thought were fine, probably, <laughs> you know, didn't challenge them, didn't know to challenge them. So I think that that's really important to, to reach out. Um, let's see. Oh, there is another article in uh, uh, Teen Vogue from where I do not get all my information, <laughs> but it, it's pretty well written. It's, it's pretty gra uh, grabbing. Um, it says, uh, this is just so important. I don't think it can be said enough. Black Lives Matter is an affirmation in a world that has made it abundantly clear that to many black lives don't matter. I hope people are listening, listening, just write that down. That's what Black Lives Matter means. Um, that they were, you know, they have been killed since, you know, their time in this country for sure and around the world for merely existing in the bodies in which they were born. Um, they were a seat. And I'm not sure I want to quote this one project because I don't know these people, but um there was a report released by the U.S. Department of Justice in 2017 that found that all of the violent crimes between 2012 and 15, 22%, 22.7% were committed by black people. May I uh, contrast that to the 60% this guy said online? 22% <laughs> and 63% of those crimes were committed against other black people. Yeah. And, and, and if I could interject at this point, you bet. I think that is one of the major issues. And I understand the problem. And I'm glad all of the stuff that you said, because people need to understand the problem with statistics. Right. Mm -hmm. But then if you do go and look at the FBI statistics, one of the even though it, they may be underreported for the most part, this is what we got. Right. But one of the really, really telling themes is that black on black crime is not that different from white on white crime in the sense that crimes are based on, especially violent crimes are generally, generally based on proximity, which means they're right. uh, racial. So that means black folks might be killing black folks, but at the same time, white folks are killing white folks, Asian folks are killing Asian folks. But when you look at all of this information about crime, the first thing that pops into people in the headlines black on black you never hear white on white crime or asian, so or, asian, or, asian or, or asian or whatever so it creates this illusion yes yes that black people are the only ones who commit crimes or if you look at something that says oh you know black people committed 20 percent you know or 20 percent of the people or whatever but what about the 80 percent who didn't do that and so it always it always kind of focuses on what that number was. But then, OK, 20 percent did this. OK, but that means 80 percent didn't do that. What are the other 80 percent? What are they doing? Are they people like me who don't commit crimes? Then we just go do our thing, go to work, raise up our children and stuff like that. And so yeah. it just creates this illusion, distortion, distortion, Very and distortion. a distortion. Exactly. Yeah. That we're the only ones that commit crime. And that's just right. ridiculous. It's just right. ridiculous. And in fact, um, over the last 10 years, the percentage of white people who are committing crimes against white people is going up. Mm -hmm. and the percentage of black people committing crimes against black people is going down. That's right. 
I, I found that fascinating. You know, I just name a black serial killer. <laughs> you know, most serial killers are white and, right. and we don't, we don't highlight that as part of the, the issue. No, exactly. But we, we're, we're much more comfortable thinking that black people are naturally violent. We're not comfortable. That's, this is the, the rhetoric that we hear. Right, right. And then you think about um, when we were on a long talk and, and, and um, Kyle was talking about um, lynchings. Lynchings are presented as this thing that happened to black people. Uh, yeah. But he pointed out, no, the thing that from a historical perspective, the real significance of Tulsa, Oklahoma, is that we built it up. We built wow. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, we built Black Wall Street. And right. then what happened? White people came in and destroyed it. So it was a massacre perpetrated by violent by white, people. white people against white black people. Because they were so successful. Because of their success. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and I thought that was really interesting that Kyle was saying, we're not talking about not knowing black history here. This is white history. Right. Exactly. White people destroyed exactly. this exactly. successful business district. And that's what they wanted. Black people had, yeah, that black people had uh, constructed themselves and were doing well, working with each other. Mm -hmm. like and there were other communities, you know, other communities, Rosewood, Florida, another right. example. And mm -hmm. I mean, um, just, you know, Central Park used right. to be Seneca Village. Oh. Right. We were moved out of Seneca right. Village so that Central Park right. could be developed. It wasn't through like a massacre, but still that was a successful black community that was wiped out in the name of Central Park, essentially. And so, again, this I think the climate that we're in right now, this is the moment for white people. Yes. To really sit down at the at the table and have these conversations <clears throat> right. because the issue right now is really you. Mm -hmm. It's what you're doing. It's what you're thinking. And inadvertently, what you may be doing That's to right. uphold this system that is so damaging to the entire country. Right. Because it's not just damaging to black people. It's damaging to everyone. Everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And to take ownership. Um, that everybody has a part in it. And it really is a white issue. And yeah. it's time that we all come to that table and start looking within ourselves and communicating authentically. You know, um, whenever I have tried to share with people the, the work we're doing, um, I might state uh, a fact that I've come to know. And often the response is not along the lines of the conversation that Gail uh, describes. It's, but what about? Mm -hmm. Like a black friend of mine was called the N-word and screamed at for driving out of a parking lot the wrong way or something. And a white friend of mine said, I, that's happened to me too. Mm -hmm. So you're missing the story when you rebut that way. Right. So listen to understand what was really happening to the black driver, <laughs> how did that feel when she, she was called the N-word, which is a whole other level of intimidation and violence, really? Yes. And I, I, I just think that we want to challenge everything with our what abouts. 
Right, right. And, and so and for that particular what about, if I had been in that conversation, I would have asked her, so how many times in your life have you been called the N-word? Right. Mm. Mm. How many times in your white life have yeah. you been called the N-word? Right. Well, but would that person even know the, the violence and the denigration really associated with it like it doesn't but that's happen. not even that's not even the point the point is that is not a part of your experience it's i don't not, care if you okay. if you people say well i've been stopped by the police okay great but again in this particular situation the black woman was describing being called the n-word and the woman's like oh well i've had whatever happened to me as well yeah. but how many yeah. times in your life have you been called the n-word exactly. yeah. yes, that. right so you can't in, in those types of conversations, you're trying to equate your experience, yes. my experience. That's what I'm getting at. Even, yes. Without I'm even kidding. having the depth of not even That's understanding right. me and my experience, but just understanding the depth of racism. Right. Yes. You have a very yes. superficial. This is like when people talk yes. about reverse racism, like that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense whatsoever. But. Okay, you want to say that. So describe <laughs> to me your personal experience with having you denied something solely because you're a white guy. Right. Name the instance, you personally, mm -hmm. when you were denied because something of because That's of the right. color of your skin. Well, well, what about when that black guy got the job instead of me? Okay, so let you okay, let's look at that. So let that same that. company, <laughs> that same company. The majority of the white people, the majority of the employees are most likely white. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you have a handful, like three non-white people that are working in that company. Another person comes along and that person happens to be more qualified than you. So just because the, the, this person got this position and you did not. And you're going to attribute it to, oh, well, that's reverse yes. racism. How right. about he's more qualified than you? And we have the look at the details, right. individual. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Do you know? Do, Do you, you know? know exactly. Or are you just making this untold making the assumption, assumption that yeah. was the only reason, the only reason I could have possibly gotten that job is because I'm black. How about because I'm qualified? Yeah. You see? Exactly. Yeah how easy it is yeah. but that, that's also because you're looking at racism and these racialized society from an extremely superficial intellectual mm -hmm. perspective because you cannot really speak to your own history within that context mm -hmm. right you can't no it's impossible it's, it's like the woman who doesn't wear want to wear a seatbelt you know, affirmative action means the black person will get the job. Therefore, that's what always happens if a black person is hired. Right. Exactly. Right. But also recognizing when you look at real affirmative action uh, statistics, oh. who benefits white women, white, white women, no less. Huh? Exactly. Exactly. Huh. So. We are almost out of time. <laughs> My gosh. It seems like it, 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 we always are running out of time when the conversation gets yes. crazy, right? Um, so again, just to kind of summarize, I think everything that we've talked about literally goes back to our four tenets. Mm -hmm. It's courage, conversation, relationship, 
and accountability. Those four things are the ingredients that we can mix in the conversation, mix in us coming together to be able to bring about some change. Because if we don't bring about change now. Thank you for listening to Inflection Point Podcast, where our mantra is cultivating change from the inside out. The journey towards anti-racism and social change doesn't stop here. Truth, reconciliation, and healing come from ongoing, open, honest, and deliberate conversations. Continue to dive in and deconstruct your thoughts, ideas, and beliefs as we band together to manifest social change. Tune in to Inflection Point Podcast every first and third Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern here on TransformationTalkRadio.com for more conversations about how we can cultivate change from the inside out.